0: Verse 9, Genesis seventeen nine. God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. And this is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token, an emblem, of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man-child in your generations. He that is born in the house, or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed, He that is born in thy house, and he that is bought with thy money, must needs be circumcised. My covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man-child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant." We have seen how God made a marvelous, incredibly glorious covenant with Abraham. The covenant was unconditional. The agreement that he made with Abraham, pardon me, the agreement that he made with Abraham was that God declared, I'm going to give you a great parcel of property. That is, you are going to have the property from the Nile River in the south to the Euphrates River up north, approximately 300,000 square miles in totality. But more important than the property, Abraham, you are going to have a posterity. That is, a great nation shall spring forth from thee, the Lord said. You're going to have a family that is as innumerable as the stars in the sky or as the sand on the seashore. Abraham, you're going to have a great piece of property. You're going to have a gigantic blessed family. I'm going to do this for you. And we saw in our previous studies that the covenant that God made with Abraham was unconditional, that is, God said, it's what I'm going to do for you. Now, as we come to this section, God says, and I'm going to give you a token. I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you an item that will remind you of the covenant that I'm making with you. I can't help but wonder, when Abraham heard that the Lord was going to give to him a token. What must have entered his mind? I wonder if he was thinking, wow, a token of the covenant. Far out. I wonder what it might be. Maybe it'll be a crown for my head. Maybe it'll be a a medal that I can pin on my chest that people will see I'm a covenant guy. I'm a blessed man. Or perhaps a bracelet around my wrist that will gleam in the sun. I can't help but kind of in my mind's eye ponder and imagine the scene that day when Abraham shows up bright-eyed and eager. Hey, what's it going to be, the token? And the Lord just sort of looks at Abraham and says, that's going to be the token? That's going to be the sign, the seal? Circumcision? And it must have taken him back a bit. I'm sure that, you know, if indeed he was expecting a crown for his head or a badge for his chest, that this was perhaps a little bit shocking, a little bit startling for Abraham. And you got to know that Sarah knew that Abraham was going off that day to meet the Lord. And she probably was wondering, well, what's he going to come back with? What's this token going to be? Hey, Abe, what did the Lord give you as a sign, as a token for the covenant? You're not going to believe this, Sarah. I mean, the guy's 99. Put yourself in his sandals. It's an amazing story. And God says, this is what I want to do. Now, the implications are obvious. The Lord says very clearly that this covenant shall be, verse 13, last phrase, in your flesh. In other words, the very act of circumcision is dealing with the flesh, removing of the flesh to bring about a greater purity and sensitivity. And the implication, the application is very obvious. That's what the Lord is doing here with Abraham and those that would follow after him. There's going to be a sensitivity and a purity that you didn't know previously. It's going to be outward, but it speaks of the inward reality. Purity, sensitivity, dealing with the flesh. Oh, I'm doing this for you, giving you a grand land and a great family. But... The mark is going to be a removal of the flesh, you see. And there's all kinds of applications that we could make and think through as it relates to this outward sign, this seal of circumcision. The token of the covenant that God made with Abraham. But there's something that has really intrigued me in recent years that I've thought through and spent quite a bit of time thinking on. And what really triggered this for me, I'll read it to you, was in reading through Romans chapter 4. Listen while I read to you. And Abraham, talking about this event, the story that we just looked at, Abraham received the sign of circumcision, A seal of the righteousness of the faith which He had. Circumcision, Paul says, is a sign and is a seal. It's a sign and it's a seal. Well, those words are used in the New Testament in a way that almost always is connected with the Holy Spirit. Interesting. Now think with me. Give me your attention. Think this through. And I think you'll be fascinated with the implication. You see, the Holy Spirit, we are told in Ephesians chapter 1, right around verse 13, the Holy Spirit is the seal that was given to the believer. Circumcision in Old Testament days, that is the outward cutting away of the flesh, in New Testament times, in this dispensation that we're in, it's the internal work of the Spirit within. But wait, what does this mean? If the Holy Spirit is the seal, Ephesians chapter 1, then what's the sign aspect? Well, the sign to, the phrase or the word sign is connected with the work of the Holy Spirit in fact, in a most particular way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, right around verse 22, the Apostle Paul has this to say. He says that tongues are a sign. And now, I'm beginning to see something. If the seal of the Holy Spirit and the sign of praying in the Spirit are connected with this idea of circumcision in some way, is there really a connection that we can make with integrity? I think so. Jot this verse down. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. Philippians 3, verse 3. If you're taking notes, jot it down in your margin. Read it later. Listen to what Paul has to say. For we... Are the circumcision. Us, you and me, the church. We are the circumcision which, listen, worship God in the spirit. Whoa. We are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit. Paul uses the very idea of Old Testament circumcision to give a New Testament application. He says, now, we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit. The sign, the seal, words connected to the working of the Holy Spirit in the life of you and me, but particularly, particularly, I suggest for your contemplation, Circumcision is really directly correlated, oh, not just with the cutting away of the flesh and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but with the sign and seal of speaking in tongues. Wh- what do you mean? When we talk about this area of speaking in tongues, people get a little bit uneasy, generally. Having been in the ministry for a lot of years now, I've noticed in places where I teach, in places where I preach, that oftentimes it's an area that people are a little bit queasy about or a little bit unsure of. It's like talking about circumcision there's kind of the same kind of reaction when the word circumcision comes up or when you're talking about speaking in tongues or praying in the Spirit. They're related. There is sort of a tendency for people to be embarrassed about tongue speaking. Perhaps because of the abuses of radical Pentecostalism. People say, oh boy, I hope now that I'm bringing somebody with me tonight that John doesn't touch on two things, circumcision or tongues. Congratulations. We're doing them both. You hit the jackpot this evening. But people tend to say, oh, you know, this tongues area is a little... And so too a circumcision. Interesting. Why is that? I'll tell you why. Because the correlation is incredible. Both circumcision and tongues deal with a removing of the flesh. How so? Paul declares this. Tongues are a sign, 1 Corinthians 14, and he says this about tongues. When you pray in tongues, he says, my mind is unfruitful. You see, my flesh does not like the tongues deal. My flesh reacts against it. My flesh is freaked out by it. My flesh wasn't, doesn't want to deal with it because I am a person, and most of you are as well, that likes to engage ourselves in things that we understand and comprehend intellectually. When you talk about praying in tongues, Paul says flat out, your mind is unfruitful. Thus, your flesh wells up and says, I don't need to get involved in that. I don't need to give myself to that. It's just a bunch of gibberish, you see. And even when I began praying in the Spirit, my flesh would tell me, you're just making that up. It doesn't make sense. What good is it? The mind is unfruitful, but the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 went on to say, although the mind is unfruitful, the spirit, the deepest part of you, the part that relates to God and will go on into eternity, the spirit is edified. Your mind doesn't get it. Your mind doesn't appreciate it. Your mind may even rebel against it. Your flesh may say, hey, what is this about? This sign, this seal of speaking in tongues. Come on. Just like Abraham may have been tempted to say, circumcision? Come on. The flesh doesn't like circumcision, you see. And the flesh doesn't like praying in the Spirit. Because the Spirit and flesh are at enmity one with the other. And we're a people that pride ourselves in our intellectual ability to comprehend and understand. And when you're talking about praying in tongues, Paul says, you don't understand what's happening. You don't get it. The Spirit is praying through you. And edification is happening within you, but you don't have a clue intellectually. You do it in faith. You do it according to what the Scriptures tell you. But it doesn't Please the flesh, you see. Let me take it a little bit further, the correlation. Even as the flesh rebels against circumcision, and the flesh rebels against speaking in tongues, the sign, 1 Corinthians 14, 22 we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit, Philippians 3-3. Interesting, because both tongues and circumcision deal with reproductive organs, what do you mean? There are only two parts of your anatomy that have the ability to be involved reproductively. One, the physical, your reproductive organs, which deals directly with the issue of circumcision, obviously. The other, spiritual, is your tongue. Proverbs chapter 18 says this, the power of life and death is in the tongue Proverbs 18:21 How is a person born again when they confess with their mouth speak the word declare audibly that Jesus is Lord Romans 10:9 and 10 tell you and me Jesus said when you want to see things happen in the spirit say to the mountain be removed don't think it don't wish it He said, speak it, go on record, take a stand, express faith, because faith is released through the words that we speak. If I don't have faith, I'm not going to speak because you see, I'll think, well, if it doesn't come to pass, I'll be thought of as being a fool. Fool. So I'll just keep it inward. And the Lord says, that's not what I want you to do, John. I want you to be a man who says to the mountain audibly, who confesses that I am Lord with your mouth, with your tongue, you see, that you share with others, not just pray for others, but share with others verbally. Preach the Gospel. The tongue has the power of death and life. The words which you say will either be reproductive or they will be murderous and detrimental. But the power is in the tongue, just like the power is in the reproductive organ physically. Interesting, because in this issue of tongues and circumcision, yes, the flesh is being dealt with in both. They're both called the sign, if you would. They're both embarrassing, and by the way, the Jewish people would be persecuted from this time on over this issue. Other cultures would say, you're the guys that do that. And they were referring to the right of circumcision. And it would be something which the Jewish people throughout history until recently, until relatively recently, when the rest of the world catches on to the medical wisdom of this circumcision, But for centuries, people mocked the Jews, made fun of the Jews, went after the Jews because they were circumcised. And so too, people make fun of those who speak in tongues. And that's why there tends to be sometimes an embarrassment. People say, well, if they think I'm one of those guys, they're going to put me in the category of kook. Uh, They're going to think I'm one of them, you see. And so there can be embarrassment for the Jew or for the believer who is doing the sign and seal in the New Testament analogy of the tongue being expressed, you see. Embarrassment can be a real factor. So much so, guess what happened? The Jewish people in their history would go for centuries ignoring circumcision. Let's not even do it. It's causing too much trouble. It's causing persecution. We're being put down, made fun of, misunderstood. Let's not even bother. And in their history, both biblically and after the canon of Scripture is completed, the Jewish people would go through great chunks of time where they would ignore circumcision, just like Christians. Go through great chunks of time where they say, why even bother with this controversy? Let's pretend that it's for another age and not for today. Let's pretend that 1 Corinthians 14 doesn't apply to us. When Paul says, I would that you all speak in tongues, not I wish you could. He says, I want you to. But let's not even deal with that. It causes too many problems, too many repercussions. Let's ignore it. And the Christian community ignores speaking in tongues for sometimes centuries too because of the uncomfortability, the embarrassment, the repercussions in the eyes of other people, you see. But these people were to do that. Why? That the men of Israel might be reminded many times in a given day. They would see in privacy. We're a marked people. We're different than the other cultures that are on every side of us. We're different than the other folks. And as they would deal with that particular part of the body several times during a day, hey. It was a continual reminder. We're different than others. But it was a difference that was noted in either privacy or intimacy. What about tongues? When you read about tongues, you come to a very interesting conclusion, at least I do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul the Apostle says, I would that you all speak in tongues. Again, the language is not, I wish you could, too bad you can't. He's saying, I would that you all speak in tongues. Jesus said in Mark chapter 16, he declares, and these signs shall follow them that believe, they shall speak with new tongues. Now, Paul says, I want you to. Paul says, I speak in tongues more than you all. Our brother Paul said, I speak in tongues more than you all. And Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. We say, oh man, I wish I was a man like Paul. Well, Paul says, follow me, and I speak in tongues more than anybody. But then he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 14, when I'm in the church with people, I would rather speak five words in a known language than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue or in tongues. So what's he saying? He's declaring this, folks. He's saying when there's people around, in a congregational setting, I would rather say five words that people can understand, be it in a prophetic word or a Bible teaching, five words that people can understand, more than 10,000 words in tongues. So he's discouraging in 1 Corinthians 14, The public expression of tongues. He says, now, if there's going to be tongues publicly, he said, make sure that there are not unbelievers in your midst, lest they think that you are what? Crazy. And he says, so make sure that it's believers who are gathering together, and he will allow two people to speak out loud in tongues at the most three and only if there is what? An interpreter. So Paul is really putting the strict rules on the public use of tongues. It's got to have an interpretation. Paul says, I'll allow two, maybe three on an exceptional evening. He says, and then be careful who's in the congregation lest they think you're flipped. So what's he doing? If he says, I want you to speak in tongues, I speak in tongues more than you all. Follow me as I follow Christ. But then he says, but I'd rather speak five words of a known language in the congregational meeting than 10,000 words in tongues. The obvious conclusion is he is discouraging or putting parameters on the public use of tongues and encouraging the private devotional usage of praying in the Spirit. Boy, I wish I could talk about this further. We have tapes out that are available for you. One that I would recommend is plain talk on tongues. And if you do the study in 1 Corinthians 14, and by the way, this is an issue that I'm going to be delving into on Sunday evenings in the not too distant future. But in this area of tongues, he's saying, look, I want you to do this, but he's encouraging the private use. Just like circumcision was a private matter. You didn't go around flaunting your circumcision or you shouldn't. (laughs) If you do, you've got a problem or you're going to have a prison ministry or something. You know, it's just not something you do. And in the same way, circumcision was a private matter, either a private reminder or... In a time of intimacy, so too tongues is a private issue as it relates to me and the Lord in intimacy, in worship. It's a very precious thing. But I'm not one who goes around speaking in tongues publicly. I'm not one that does that because you see, hey, it's a private issue. Now, I know that in certain meetings... There may be an inspiration that one has to give a prayer or praise in tongues and there'll be an interpretation. But that's not the general use of this particular manifestation. Like circumcision, it's private, it's intimate. Like circumcision, it deals with the flesh. My flesh may not like it. Like circumcision, it deals with reproduction. Like circumcision, it's a point of put-downs and even sometimes persecution. Like circumcision, it's an unusual token. Circumcision and tongues, a very interesting parallel, a very interesting correlation. Well, we can go on, but I'll have to leave it there for right now. But suffice it to say, I want to challenge the Applegate family today. Don't ignore the token that the Lord has given to you in the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that would definitely include praying in the Spirit. I really do believe that it is a part of the walk that gives you sensitivity. And it is a factor in seeing purity. Because so often I don't know how to pray. My mind... Somebody says, Oh, John, pray for this. I don't know if that's the Lord's will. I don't know how to express myself. I feel all bottled up and my English language is just inadequate. But man, I can pray in the Spirit. My mind is unfruitful, but my spirit is praying. And there can be a great deal of sensitivity because my mind is not getting in the way. That is the Spirit praying through me for the person or the situation that's causing trouble for me or I'm not sure what to do with the issue. Also, I find that when I'm just plain old pooped and weary, went out for a little jog this evening. Man, I got weary after about 15 steps. And I had a great intent to pray, you see, and I started praying, but then my flesh just kind of got a little bit weary, and I found myself able then to just pray in the Spirit and let it flow. And it's a wonderful thing. I would encourage you, listen, I would encourage you, gang, to make your conclusions about life in the Spirit not based upon your previous denominational background, whatever it may be, not based upon what I'm saying in this particular study, I would encourage you to say, what do the Scriptures declare? You see, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I would that you speak in tongues. Now, a lot of people say, well, that was for a different day. Well, then what about baptism or communion that are talked about and taught on in 1 Corinthians? This is the real issue. People say, well, we're going to keep 1 Corinthians 11. We'll knock out 12, which deals with tongues. We'll keep 13, which deals with love. We'll knock out 14, which deals with interpretation and prophecy and miracles. We'll keep 15, which deals with resurrection and by the way, we'll keep 60, and that deals with offerings and tithes. And, and you find yourself in a situation where you hear teachers or read commentaries that are picking and choosing. I do not believe that that is wise. We don't have that right to say, well, we'll keep this and trash that and keep this and ignore that. I believe as we go through the Scriptures... Whether we understand it, whether we agree with it, whether we have a handle on it, we must embrace what the Word has to say. Jesus said that we who believe will speak in new tongues. Paul said, I would that you speak in tongues. In the book of Acts, they did speak in tongues over and over and were often put down for it. And I would challenge you, whether it's this issue or any issue that you might be looking at, Please don't make your conclusions based upon what some preacher, teacher, or commentator may say. Get into the Scriptures and say, what does the Word declare? That's what finally moved me away from not believing in this type of reality to embracing it personally. I had to deal in my own life with the Scriptures. I had to say, well, it's here. What am I going to do with it? Am I going to embrace it or am I going to seek to explain it away? And I'm so thankful that I am learning to embrace the Scriptures, whether I understand it or not. I just say, Lord, righteous and true are your decisions. Well, anyway, that day, back to our story. My goodness. Back to our story. The sign, the seal, the token was a little bit shocking you're going to be circumcised, and this is going to be the badge, the mark, that you are a special chosen people. And God said, verse 15, unto Abraham, Now as for Sarai, whose name means contentious, as for Sarai, thy wife, thou shalt not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Changing the name of Sarai from contentious to princess. And she is that. One of the great, great ladies in all of history. A giant. Oh my. Her nature was changed and I think it's more than simply coincidental that Sarai becomes Sarah by the addition of the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. You add the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet into Sarai, and you come up then with the name Sarah. The number five in the Scripture is the number of what? Just like Abram's name was changed from Abram to Abraham by adding the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Both names were changed by adding one letter, the fifth letter, the letter of grace, and they are changed. Sarai from contentious, To princess. And the Lord says, your wife, her name will be changed today. Sarah shall her name be. And I will bless her, verse 16, and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Well, Abraham, verse 17, fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? It's the laugh of ecstasy and elation. It's not a doubt of mockery or unbelief. Later on, we'll see Sarah laugh, but not in the same manner. And Sarah will be rebuked because her laugh was, Oh, come on. Abraham's laugh was, oh, come on, wow, amazing, I'm a hundred, my bride is ninety, and she's been barren, we're going to have a baby, man, amazing, and he's cracking up inside, but then he sobers up, reality hits him, for you see, he already has a son, who's 13 at this time, named who? Ishmael. It wasn't the promised child that was promised to Abraham way back when. It was the child of his fleshly endeavor to try and help God with the program. You know the story. Sarah said, Hey, look, I know that God's promised that, you know, we're going to be a great family, but the fact of the matter is, I'm barren, I'm old, take my handmaiden, my little servant girl, Hagar, have relations with her. And so Abraham did just that. And the child they produced, Hagar and Abraham, is Ishmael. Now Ishmael's 13. Ishmael, the result of his fleshly endeavor to try and make something happen. He thinks about his son. He loves his son. He's 13 years old. He loves Ishmael. And at first he's cracking up, oh wow, we're going to have this promised son. And then he remembers the one he does have, Ishmael. And he cries out, verse 18, Oh, that Ishmael might live before Thee. Oh, Oh. Lord, thanks for the promise of a coming Son, but let Ishmael be the one. Let Him be the one through whom the blessings and the covenants are fulfilled in. Let Him. And I talked about this with you a few Sundays ago. We're a lot like Abraham. We produce Ishmael's in our flesh, do things in our own energy, trying to help out God, or maybe we're just caught up in our own sin and iniquity, and we produce Ishmael's. And then we say, oh God, bless this mess. Let, let, let the mess be blessed. Let the mess be blessed. Oh Lord, look, let me tell you, Lord, what th- this is the thing. And Abraham is doing just that. He's saying, bless my mess. The mistake I made, the endeavor of my flesh. Bless it. Oh, that Ishmael might live. Watch what God says. God said, verse 19, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed. I'm not changing my program. I'm not going to do what you're telling me to, Abraham. That's a result of your flesh. I can't really bless that in the way that you're suggesting that Ishmael might be the one. It's got to be a miracle. It's got to be all me, the Lord is implying. Not your ingenuity. Not your abilities kicking in to make something happen. No. It's going to be done in a way where only I will get the glory, Abraham. Hmm. Your wife, indeed, is going to have a child, even though she's 90 and barren. Even though you're 100, Abraham. You will have a son, and you shall call his name, verse 19, Isaac, which means what? Laughter, or like I like to put it, crack up that's what his name means just he's going to crack you up it's going to be an amazing thing and i will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him he's the one abraham not ishmael but as for ishmael verse 20 i've heard thee you're crying out that i would bless ishmael behold i have blessed him and will make him fruitful I will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes or nations, twelve specific nations are going to spring off of or be descendants from Ishmael. And I will make him a great people. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this same time next year. And he left off talking with him, and God went up from Abraham." You want him blessed? He can't be blessed the way that you're suggesting, Abraham. It's got to be Isaac, the miracle baby. But I've heard your prayer. Okay, he'll become a great people. Twelve nations. And by the way, listen, those twelve nations were perpetual, painful problems for the people of Israel. I can't help but wonder if it wouldn't have been wiser for our dear friend and brother Abraham. Instead of saying, oh, that Ishmael, bless Ishmael, I can't help but wonder if it might not have been wiser for Abraham just to say, Lord, I've messed up. What do you want to do now? But he said, bless him, bless him. Oh, that Ishmael might be the one. Okay, he'll have 12 nations coming from him. And they're going to be a problem, (laughs) Abraham, for the promised One, Isaac, and the descendants that come after him. And to this day, are you aware of the problem they're having in the Middle East? It's because of this story. To this day, the sons of Ishmael, the nations that spring from Ishmael, are still a perpetual painful problem for the nation of Israel. Wow. It sobers me It makes me want to say, Lord, I don't know what to ask for. I'm going to just present the problem to You and I'm going to leave it with You. And as I've said in recent weeks over and over again, it's just so true, gang. God always gives His best to those who leave the choice with Him. The problem comes when I start demanding or dictating, or directing, or advising God in what he should do. I'm learning. I don't know. What do you want to do? Well, Ishmael. Okay, I've heard you. God said that day. Twelve princes are going to spring from him, and he's going to be a mighty people. Indeed, Ishmael has become that. Well, Abraham, verse 23, took Ishmael his son and all that were born in his house and all that were bought with his money, that is servants, slaves, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the self same day as God had said to him. Abraham was 90 years old and 9 when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Ishmael his son, verse 25, was 13 years of age when he was circumcised. In the selfsame day was Abraham circumcised, and Ishmael his son, and all the men of his house, born in the house and bought with money. They were also circumcised with him. Three things to note here in this marvelous story. I want you to take note of this. First of all, I want you to see in this marvelous little section. Verse 23-27, through 27, the obedience of Abraham, first of all, number one, parental obedience. Dad, listen carefully. Parental obedience. Listen up, my dear brothers. Parental obedience. In that self-same day, verse 23 tells you and me, Abraham took Ishmael his son and circumcised him. He took Ishmael. He didn't tell Ishmael. Listen, Dad. He took Ishmael. He didn't tell Ishmael. Can I say that again? He took Ishmael. He didn't tell Ishmael. This is huge. He took his 13-year-old son and said, Son, this is what we are going to do now. Not, here's what you should do today. He said, this is what we are going to do. He took him. He didn't tell him. I have noticed that it makes all the difference in the world when a man will take his son or his daughter, not tell them that they should pray, but take them to the place of prayer and pray with them. I am enjoying this so much right now. My son Benjamin, we spend time every night at his bed. We bow down together and we pray for a chunk of time. That's Benny. And if I'm not home at night, then he grabs me in the morning and says, Daddy, we missed prayer time last night because I had to go to bed. Let's do it now. And so we pray together. And I noticed a remarkable difference in my son. Who before, when I would say, make sure that you say your prayers, Benjamin, his prayers would be rather short. He would pray, and he would say his prayers and hop into bed, and we would kiss him goodnight and pray for him. But what a difference it's made when I say, Ben, from here on out, you and me, we're going to be prayer partners. We're going to pray together. Man, he's engaged in a whole different way. And he goes on and on in prayer. I don't know where he gets that. But he goes on and on. And we pray for the missions and we pray for the president. We pray for the Jacksonville school teachers and we thank God for... It's just a marvelous time. And you've all experienced that to one degree or another. Rediscover it, dear Father. You take your son. This is where so much of parenting is missed. When parents tell their kids what to do, But don't take them and do it with them. Oh, you should go to Bible study. You should have devotions. You should, no, you take your son, not tell your son. You take your grandson, not tell your grandson. You take your daughter, not tell your daughter. You take them. Don't send your kids to Sunday school, the old Stuart Hamblin song used to sing from years ago. Get out of that bed and take them, he would sing. I can still hear that chorus go round and round in my mind. We had that record, right, Mom? Great. Don't take your kids. Don't, yeah, no, don't send your kids to Sunday school. Get out of that bed and take them. Now you wouldn't want to do that. Anyway, it, it, it's a great truth. It's a great, great truth. Don't tell them. Take them. And here, here our, our friend Abraham, this giant of a man, he doesn't say, hey, Ishmael, look, I know this is kind of an embarrassing deal, so why don't you go off in the next room and work on this project? Guess what? It wouldn't have happened. Ishmael would have said, yeah, right. Tell me about it. Give me a break. Very funny, Pops. He took him. He said, son, this is what we're going to do right now. Because God has spoken. This is important. And we, you and me, are going to do this now. You see. Parental obedience. Number two, professional obedience. Wow. It gets even more intriguing to me. He not only circumcises his son... But all of those that worked for him were circumcised too. Oh, can you imagine the litigation that would happen today? If <laughs> can you imagine the ACLU? Can you ima- But Abraham said, "Look, boys, if you're working for me, this is the way it's going to be in this company. I like that." I'm paying you, you're working here, and this is the way the company is going to be run. God said, we're going to deal with the flesh, so deal with it. You're all going to be circumcised today. And I like that, because increasingly I think people that have men working under them, because of the fear of legal repercussions or being ostracized professionally, being misunderstood, I've noticed that there tends to be in Christian employers, whether they are employing one person or 10 or eight or 150 in their company, there tends to be, "Well, I'm not going to force my thing on them. I would ask you to reconsider that. I would ask you to reconsider your position if you're a boss if you have somebody working under you or for you, that you be like Abraham and say, the company is going to be run on principles of God's Word. We're going to walk in this way. Now, I can't change your heart, but I can set the standard and say, these things are non-negotiable. The kinds of music that we're listening to, the kinds of language that's being spoken here, the kinds of deals that we make in the issue of integrity, these things are non-negotiable. Whether we work on Sunday, there are certain things that as a company we're not going to tolerate. And if you don't like it, I understand that. I'll get somebody else. I really feel that you guys or women who have people working under you, that you are in that position, I would ask you to consider the Abraham model and say, this is the way it's going to be. This is just flat out, plain old, the way it's going to be. We're not going to allow the flesh to be undealt with in our company. I can't make you become a Christian. I, I know that that would not be possible or proper. But I can set the stage and say, in this company This is the way we're going to live, behave, and work as a company. That's what Abraham did that day. There is parental obedience. There is professional obedience. He circumcised all of the slaves and servants and all those that worked for him. Number three, there is personal obedience. Personal obedience. Now think this through with me. If you're old here tonight, if you're 35 or older, listen. Abraham... It would have been very tempting for him to say, that's a great idea, God. These young bucks, yeah, they should deal with the flesh and they need to, you know, be sensitized and purified and all that stuff. Great idea. I'll make sure that they do it. But Lord, I'm 99. Let, let's be reasonable. I am 99 years old. You know, retirement's at 65. I'm way overdue. Lord, come on. Think this through. Certainly, you don't expect me to deal with the flesh in this way. I'm 99 years old, Father. But that's not what Abraham would say. The self-same day, the very day that he heard the Word, he said, got it, not just parentally, not just professionally, but personally, even though this might be painful, even though I might not understand it, I will submit to it. Now I say that to say, there can be a tendency as you get up in years to say, well, I'm glad those young people are going to Bible study to get purified. I'm real proud of them. And I'm glad the young people are going to Sunday evening to receive sensitivity circumcision, if you would, via communion and praying in the Spirit. I'm glad that others are going to listen to what the Word has to say about speaking in tongues, but come on. I'm old. Don't ask me to be stretched. Don't ask me to enter into a new experience spiritually. Come on now. I am old. I'm 40. And for Pete's sake, I'm set in my ways. It's already... No. You got to love this guy Abraham because even though he's 99 he says okay let's do it I like that I want to be that kind of man I I want you to be that kind of person I want us to be that kind of congregation where we don't say well you know those were great days back in 82 But now, you know, we got to say, Lord, what do You have for us now? And even though it might be stretching or even a bit painful, let's do it, Lord. I like this. Parental, professional, and personal obedience. Well, quickly, the Lord appeared unto him, verse 1 of chapter 18, unto Abraham in the plains of Mamre, He sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door. He bowed himself toward the ground. And he said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Uh, Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched wash your feet, rest yourself under the tree, and I, verse 5, will fetch a morsel of bread, and comfort ye your hearts. After that ye shall pass on. For therefore are you come to your servant, and they said, so do as thou hast said. He's sitting there in the door of the tent. It's during the heat of the day, the hot time. And by the way, the heat of the day in the Scriptures is often a paradigm, a picture of, of the fiery trials, the hard times that come our way. Now the Lord appears to Abraham here. The three men are the Lord as we shall see and two angels accompanying him. The Lord and two angels are on their way to Sodom to deal with that sinful, sickening city. These men come to Abraham, the Lord and two angels. Abraham sees and realizes these aren't ordinary visitors. And he runs out to meet him. Notice he has this encounter with the Lord in the heat of the day. And I simply will say this so often in my walk, and yours too. We've seen the Lord in a fresh way. We've had the Lord come to us in a real encountering moment in the heat of the day when it was hot. That is, when we were in fiery trials. Ask Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego about that. Remember those three guys? They were cast into what? A fiery furnace and they saw the Lord. And when I hear people in the body, in the Applegate family, who are going through fiery trials, hot times, they're in the heat of the day. On one hand, my heart goes out to them. But on the other hand, I'm sort of in a sense, envious of them. Because I know that the Lord is going to make Himself known to them in a special way, in the heat of the day. He does. And here He is, the Lord, two angels. Abraham runs out. I like that. Not only when the Lord appeared in the heat of the day, but what Abraham did. He ran out. He ran. Here's a 99-year-old guy. And when he saw them, yes, right, freshly circumcised. And when he saw them, (laughs) verse 2 says, he ran to meet them. Now, think about this. Here's a guy, 99. He sees them. He realizes it's the Lord coming in his direction and he runs out to meet him. How do you greet the Lord? How do I greet the Lord when He comes our way? What do you mean? The alarm clock goes off. The appointment has been set. Time for devotions. Time for prayer. Time for meditation. The alarm goes off. Do we run out to greet Him? Do you say, oh, good Lord, it's morning. Or do you say, good Lord, it's morning. I mean, how do you respond when the alarm clock goes off? What do you say? Abraham, 99 years old, runs out in the heat of the day and he greets him. And watch what else happens. Oh, oh, stay here. Don't leave, he says. Please, refresh yourself in this place. And Abraham hastened, verse 6, into the tent unto Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal. Knead it. Make cakes upon the hearth. Then Abraham, verse 7, ran into the herd and fetched a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man and then hastened to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree and they did eat. I love this. Sarah, quick. Start baking up some bread. We got some incredible visitors that have come our way today. And then Abraham runs out and gets a fatted calf. And by the way, for you Bible thinkers, remember the story that Jesus told of the prodigal son? When it was the father who ran out to greet the prodigal, you see, and killed a fatted calf for him. You know the story. In this case, it's... The prodigal, if you would, Abraham, running to greet the father who's there and killed the fatted calf for him. All of the implications are many. When you consider the fact that verse 8 goes on to say, he stood by them under the tree. The tree in scriptures is symbolic of what? The cross, and he did eat. Oh, I wish I could give a whole sermon on the implications. I'll just leave it there for you if you choose to think it through. But be that as it may, very practically for us today, this story is great. Notice what Abraham's doing. Sarah, get the bread ready. I'll get the main course done. Ladies, do you like this? The man, the hubby, is helping out with the cooking. He is involved in the process of preparing this meal, you see. In fact, he's doing the heavy hauling He's doing the main course, really. You know, this is convicting to me. I I tend to be more like that guy who on Mother's Day, you know, he says after the wife fixed the big family meal on Mother's Day, honey, it's Mother's Day, great meal. Don't you worry about the dishes. They'll keep till morning. (laughs) That tends to be more like me, sad to say. But Abraham, Abraham in this story, Very practical, fellas. This guy's a great man. He's involved in the making of the meal. There's all kinds of implications we don't have time to look at tonight, but you can ponder it if you wish to. Well, anyway, they eat under the tree. This meal that Abraham and Sarah fixed for these visitors from heaven, you see. And they said unto him, verse 9, Where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. And the Lord said, verse 10, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. Lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door which was behind him. She was eavesdropping. Great story. And I thought about this yesterday in reading this before the study. I thought, that's interesting. She's eavesdropping. She's eavesdropping. You never hear people... Adam's dropping. It's always eavesdropping. It tends to be a womanly thing, I think. It's an Eve thing. I don't, I don't know. But that's what she's doing. She's eavesdropping. And she's hearing this conversation. She heard it now, verse 11. Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore, Sarah laughed, verse 12, within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old too? Come on now. She's laughing incredulously in mockery. Give me a break. Oh, my husband is an old geezer and I'm beyond the time of childbearing too. She laughs. And the Lord, verse 13, said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Why did your wife laugh? He asks the husband. There's a lesson there too, man. Why did your wife laugh? And then he says... Is anything too hard for the Lord? I have that verse underlined in all the Bibles that I use. Is anything too hard for the Lord? You see, we have this tendency to think in degrees of difficulty. For example, somebody comes to me and says, Oh, hey John, I'm struggling with a headache. Would you pray for me? Sure, Lord bless Bob and I pray that you would just take away the tension and and, and just touch him and help him just to have that healing touch from your hand in Jesus name then a minute later somebody comes to me and says Pastor John I just came back from the doctors I have a malignant brain tumor would you pray for me and I don't know why and I say, okay, guys, pastors, gather around. Oh, Lord, Lord, oh, Lord, Jesus, 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 Lord, Lord, Lord. And, and I, I, I get this thing, this Pentecostal deal kicking in. You know what I mean? I do that. Now, why is that? It's like I think, well, a headache. That's not a problem. Cancer? Ooh, Lord, Lord, And the Lord says, it's no different to me. A headache or a brain tumor is exactly the same degree of difficulty for me. There's no diff. Is anything too hard for me? We rate things. We rank things. God says, is anything hard for me? Nothing is hard for me. And I don't know why it is that you know we tend to move into this kind of baal like prayer meeting remember the prophets of baal who were dancing and thrashing their bodies trying to get the attention of their false god when elijah the prophet when it was finally his turn he just prayed one sentence said lord show him boom and there it was oftentimes that kind of not always but oftentimes that kind of tendency that we have can be indicative that we think boy lord this is going to be a real tough one for you and we're going to really energize ourselves to try and get you going because this is a real tough one <laughs> and uh, i think it's a danger i think it needs to be watched not that there shouldn't be passion in prayer but let's keep in mind that our passion in prayer is not because there's degrees of difficulty or that we're trying to get god's attention Sometimes I need to stir up my own soul. That's valid. That's important. For me to engage my own self, my own faith. But hey, I I think sometimes we really err when we pray by thinking as though if it's a big issue, man, we got to really pump it up and uh, pray it out in a way of uh, loudness and so forth and so on. That's not necessarily true. Is anything too hard for the Lord? He says, at the time appointed, I will return to thee according to the time of life. Sarah shall have a son. Well, then Sarah, verse 15, she's still eavesdropping. She denied. She's saying, I laughed not. For she was afraid. I didn't laugh. Very presidential. <laughs> I, I, I didn't laugh. I'm not that woman. Uh, She denied. I didn't laugh. And watch what the Lord says. No, but you did laugh. This is great. The Lord isn't condemning her, but the Lord just says uh, matter-of-factually to her, no, you did. I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. That's it. I mean, the the Lord just says, hey... I want you to know that I know. You did laugh. I know exactly what's going on in your heart and what you're doing behind closed doors. I know. You did laugh. Then the men, verse 16, it just ends there. It's a great ending. I mean, it just what happens next doesn't say. Just you did laugh, and on their way they rose up, and, and the men looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way or to get them traveling, to get them going. And the Lord, oh, hey, listen, Dad, once again, the Lord, verse 17, said to these angels who were traveling with him, shall I hide from Abraham the thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I know him, God says, that he will command his children and his household, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. Can I ask you to think this through? I'm going to tell Abraham what I'm going to do. And this hit me like a ton of bricks some time ago. It's amazing, Lord. You are about to give to Abraham fresh information. Real revelation. And the information and the revelation is based upon one factor. Not the accumulation of Abraham's study and knowledge and reading No. But the fact that Abraham would be involved in communication to his family. I want to say that again. The revelation that Abraham has is based upon not the accumulation of his knowledge, but the communication to his family. The Lord says, I'm going to let him know what I'm doing. Because, verse 19, I know Him, He will command His children that come after Him. I'm going to tell Him what I'm doing. I'm going to give insights to Him. I'm going to give revelation and understanding. He's going to have a handle on where I'm going because He is a man who will teach His children. Now, if that really sinks in, as it should, the implications are quite astounding. God is looking to give you, to give me, revelation of what He's doing, how He's moving, where He's going. And it's based not upon the notes I put in my journal. Or the margins that I write in, in my commentary. It's based upon John. Will you share this with Benjamin, Mary, Christy, and Peter, John? John, if you will share with your children, I will constantly give you fresh and new revelation. I know him, the Lord says. This guy I know, he says to the angels that day, he will take what I tell him and he'll pass it on directly to his children. Why do I say that? Because, back to the same point that we touched on earlier about don't tell your son, take him. Grandparents, listen to me. Aunts and uncles, parents, whoever you might be, people often come to me, and it kind of takes me back sometimes, but they say, man, Pastor John, if I could go back and do it all over again, I would not go into the profession that I'm in presently. I think if I could go back, I would go into the ministry. I hear that not infrequently. And I understand that because I have found the ministry to be absolutely delightful. Teaching the Word, praying, discipling, encouraging, engaged in things that I know are eternal. Things that are going to be carried on into eternity. It's a fabulous calling. But here's the fact of the matter. If you have children, or if you have grandkids, you are in the ministry. That's the fact. Don't look for some speaking venue, or some clerical collar to put on, or some big gig to do. Look at your children. Look at those two little ones, or those three grandkids whatever it might be in your situation, and say, that is My ministry. Jesus was there teaching His disciples. Jesus, they said, your mother and your brothers are calling for you. Jesus said, who is My mother? Who are My brothers? Are not these, He said, who hear the Word of God and do it? In other words... Jesus was saying, My disciples are my family. Now for you and for me, our family are our disciples. It's Benjamin. It's Mary. It's Christy. And Jesse previously. And PJ, who's now in ministry. You see, as much as I enjoy what I'm doing right now, And I really do. I love opening up the Word. I love being here. I love doing this. But you know what? I don't get nearly the joy out of this as I do when I'm home with my kids having family devotions. That's where I really teach. I mean, not yesterday, which was Wednesday, but Tuesday night. Sitting there with my family and talking about the story of Adonai Bezek, who had his thumbs cut off and his toes lopped off, and watching Benjamin and Mary sit there and Christie pondering and Tambo listening, and saying, you know, here's what this means. Adonai Bezek having his thumbs cut off and his toes lopped away. And I explained to him the story that's found there in Judges chapter 1. And then we prayed together and we sang some songs and we interacted. That is the greatest delight in my life when it comes to ministry. I love this. I love you. But I'll tell you this, nothing compares to getting your family around you and sharing with them, praying together, giving a simple lesson singing songs, sharing with each other. That is the ministry. That is the ministry. Welcome, Reverend, whoever you might be. Are you pastoring well? That's your ministry. Your family. Your kids, your grandsons. Whoever they might be. That is your ministry. The Apostle John said, I have no greater joy than this, third John verse four, than to hear that my children walk in truth. There's nothing like it. And you're in it. See, you might look at me and say, Well, you know, Applegate's okay, but the sermons are too long and and uh you know, I don't agree with the way they do the nursery thing, and, and I would do the, 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 the bulletins a little bit differently, and I'm not sure why they have this. And, and rightly, you can have all kinds of critiques, understandably. So do it right in your own home church. You're the pastor, you're the pope. It's your gig. That's it. Do it there. That's the deal. How are you doing in your home church? That's the ministry. That's it. And you know what? You get these guys fresh out of the oven. They haven't been messed up. They're all yours. Here they come, one at a time. And there they are. And now you get to disciple them, pray for them, love on them, give Bible studies to them, help them memorize the Word, help them interact with the Lord. Do it that's the greatest ministry of my life so when a guy comes to me and says man I, I, I you know what I'm this or I'm that professionally but I would really like to be in the ministry sometimes I'll say how are you doing with your family where are you teaching right now your kids how's your prayer times going with your little guy because you're pastoring right now you have the opportunity to Today, to be in the most exciting aspect of ministry, it's called family. God said, I know this man Abraham, I'm going to share with him. And I point this out because I'll tell you, much of my sermon material, people say, where do you get this stuff? A whole lot of it. In fact, I I don't know if I can really percentage it but I'll tell you this, a great chunk of what I teach here was birthed in family devotions. Talking with my kids. That's the place where I teach the best. You guys get second best at best. It's the times when the Word comes really alive to me. It's the times when, when revelation is given to me as it relates to my family. And, and any guy that will say, any woman with her children, any grandparent that will take the challenge and say, I'm going to disciple and teach and train these kids. They're going to get fresh revelation. They're going to get fresh revelation. God says, I'm going to tell this man because he is going to tell his children. I'm going to tell them what I'm doing. Well, quickly, we're almost done truly. Truly. I'm going to tell him because he'll tell his family. The Lord said, Because, verse 20, the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because their sin is grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which has come to me. If not, I will know it. And the three men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. Pardon me. Verse 22, and the men, there was actually the two angels, they went towards Sodom. But now it's just Abraham and the Lord. I'm going to go down. Prophecy buffs, make a note. When did the Lord say, I'm going down? He said, because the cry of Sodom has come up to me. Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, in the last days it will be as it was in the days of Lot or Sodom. The Lord says, I'm coming down, and the Lord is going to come down again. The rapture of the church is about to happen because we are living in days that parallel the days of Lot and Sodom. You heard the news story earlier on in the week. The administration, the White House, was proud to announce that we are now appointing the first proactively, openly gay ambassador. Not just one who's suspicion to be or kind of hush-hushed known to be. This is a leader in the gay community. We are appointing him a Mr. Alfred Hormel to the Netherlands, I believe it is. Hormel of Hormel Meat Company, Spam. Remember the Spam cans? Hormel is a multi-gazillionaire who has been a donator to a certain political person. And he is now being sent to the Netherlands. But here's the deal. The reason it's such a big event is because if you watched it or read about it, it's being now propagated that we are showing that we are in no way biased against, ashamed of, or prejudiced about homosexuality, the gay community. We are embracing it. And this is a step that we are speaking to all of Europe, to all of the world that we are proud to be embracing uh, the alternative lifestyle. The thing about Mr. Hormel is this. He's in his 60s, multi-gazillionaire, has five grown kids and 17 grandchildren. After five grown kids and 17 grandchildren, he goes off into the gay lifestyle. Why? Well, I know a little bit about his story. It's all too common. A man who was married, raised five kids, businessman, successful in his financial endeavors, but began to mess around in sensual stuff. And the problem with messing around in sensual stuff outside of the context of marriage is this. It hooks you. And the problem with being hooked on stuff like that is this. It satisfies or titillates for a while, but pretty soon that wears off. And you have to go into harder core stuff and harder core than that. And pretty soon, as Hormel's find, pretty soon it's not just hardcore. It's got to be bizarre. And pretty soon it's got to be weird. And pretty soon it's got to be gay. And you find men, you find women who because they began to give themselves over to compromises. They find themselves no longer satisfied with normal expression. Now they go into aberrant behavior patterns. And he is another proof of what we've been saying, increasingly in a minority, that homosexuality is an activity that people choose to become involved in because of giving over their flesh to all sorts of stimulation that demands more and more. John, do you think that people aren't born gay? I don't think people are born gay. The Scriptures would not condemn homosexuality if it was inevitable, unavoidable. I believe that every person who's born has certain tendencies to certain kinds of sins. And if a child has a tendency to be a murderer, we don't say, well, he's just born that way, so when he's three years of age, he takes the calf and lops off its head. We don't say, well, that's just the way Fred is. I don't agree with it necessarily, but that's just his propensity. And then he pulls off the dog's tail and, He paints his room black and he puts swastikas on his arm. We don't say, well, that's just the way he is. If you do, you're a fool. If you sense a child is tending towards that kind of bizarre, you nip it in the bud. You say that's unacceptable. Whatever sin, and all of us, every one of us, have some propensity to some kind of sin. And it's got to be nipped in the bud and dealt with in our lives or in our children. It must not be said to be, well, it's inevitable. He's going to be a murderer. Or he's going to be a torturer. Or he's going to be a homosexual. Unacceptable. And let the chips fall where they may. But Romans chapter 1 is clear to me that there is a process. Study it through a person who begins to give himself over to his sensual desires and suppresses the knowledge of God, he will become vulnerable to ending up like Ambassador Hormel. In this case, the whole city of Sodom, just like sad to say our society today, accepted, embraced, and celebrated homosexuality. And God says, I've heard about this, so to speak, now I'm going to go down and check it to see if it be true. You say, well, John, I thought God knew everything. Why would He go and check it out? Simply for this reason. People have a tendency to say, well, what do you know, God? So God says, well, I'll come down and dwell among you so that you will know that I do know firsthand. He didn't need to do this, but He comes down. And he walks around in this arena. And the angels are sent ahead of him into the sinful city of Sodom. Well, the rest of the story we looked at on Sunday. In verses 23-33, through the Lord and Abraham are involved in a negotiation. Abraham is bargaining. Lord, Lord, shall not the judge of all the earth do right, he says, Lord, You're the judge and You'll do right. Will You destroy the righteous with the wicked? Lord, there's righteous people in Sodom. You can't destroy the city if there's righteous ones that are living therein. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? If there's 50 there, You won't destroy the city. No, I won't destroy the city if there's 50 righteous therein. How about 45, Lord? Nope. 45? All. Have mercy on the city. Forty? Okay, forty. Thirty? Yep, thirty. I'll spare the city if there's thirty. Twenty? Fine with me if there's twenty. Lord, one more time, Abraham said that day, how about if there's ten righteous men? What do you say? I'll spare it if there's ten. But you know the story. There was not even ten in the city. But shall not the judge of all the earth do right? even though there would be only four, Lot, his wife, and two daughters, the Lord would not even let them be destroyed, those four. He would pull them out, as we'll see in our study next time. He yanks them out of the city, and then He destroys Sodom completely. Interesting to note here, the interaction of Abraham and the Lord. Abraham sharing his heart. Abraham confident that the Lord would do right. That's really the summation of prayer, at least for me. Sharing your heart, but trusting that the judge of all the earth will ultimately do right. Lord, I'm going to share my heart with you. And now I'm going to trust that ultimately you, the judge of all the earth, will do right.